Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, a huge number of investigations are underway inside federal agencies and private sector companies trying to determine the extent of the cyber attack, a massive cyber attack. Of course, Russian hackers are suspected. Let's bring in somebody who may be able to tell us a little bit more and at least will be able to tell us what the process is uh, right now for going about trying to solve this problem. Jack Devine is former chief of CIA Worldwide Operations and is founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, which is a risk consultancy and an intelligence firm. Jack, have you ever seen anything of this scope and scale? Um, no, I think this is really a, a critical uh, point in the cyber war that's uh, taking place. It should be a real wake-up call. The dimension, the aggressiveness, the the, in t- collecting intelligence around the world is a common uh, common event, but the magnitude of going into our health units and into every aspect of uh, of our defense system is uh, really over over the top an extremely aggressive thing. There's one other point I'd make. I think we're only looking at the tip of the iceberg here. Jack, give us a sense of kind of how this has progressed, this being kind of Russian state-sponsored hacking of U.S. government operations. Give us just maybe the history of this, and and where are we right now in that compendium? We talked, uh, Paul, on the show before about the fact that, you know, there has been a continuous continuous intelligence activities uh, by the Russians, uh, over the last 25 years, when the wall fell down, there was a, te- a temporary break. But there has been an aggressive operational activity, was and particularly brought to light in 2016, which we could uh, touch on. So the Russians are still using the Cold War strategy of trying to keep the United States off balance and to collect information inside of our, our system. The difference today, as exemplified by 2016, they are so aggressive that they are now going beyond the collection to putting themselves in a position where they can act on it. And that is something that I think people have missed this point, not only during the election and shrugged at the fact that they were a collection, but they used it. And I'm afraid here what we're looking at through these trap doors that we are now only getting a handle on partially, they'll be in a position to actually make things happen beyond collecting, bringing down our utility system our communication system. And I believe they're much more deeply embedded in our defense contracting world than is even uh, represented by this most recent attack. You made a chilling comment a moment ago saying we're only looking at the tip of the iceberg. But before we get to that, I want to ask you, what exactly are they planning on doing if they're, you know, standing around in all of our systems in the Defense Department, in, you know, all of the agencies and in private companies? What are they waiting for? Well, I think uh, not to go to television shows and drama and so on, but, you know, they have sleepers and they, they build and we build as well uh, capabilities to be used in a crisis. So 
when you use it as part of a weapon, it's like having your nuclear weapons. They're all sitting there. And the question is when you use them. You use them when there's a confrontation or you want to exercise um, exercise uh, capabilities. They use it in the election. That was the That's where there was such a break in the rules that I operated. We had an understanding we weren't going to screw around in each other's internal systems and they did that was the and i think we just didn't spend enough time analyzing that so today they're in our systems and when i say the defense contracting where when you look at the way they approached it it's just classic i mean they go through an outside contractor they get into the software system which then allows them windows into other 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 areas so um you know, that's and to, to my way of thinking, that's that's action. So they're prepositioned. Those trap doors were not meant for a one time collection. And that's been said by many, many commentators on this. This was for persistent collection and for use in the time of uh, of crisis. Jack, what should the U.S. response be? Yeah, now, this is this is one of the trickiest questions, I think, of all that, you know, the new administration has to deal with it. Um, I think there's been, as I said, an awareness of the threat, but not the full dimensions of it. And there needs to be a strategy and an organizational effort to build to build a, a capability. We need to plus up and make additional expenditures and looking at the Russian uh, threat, the Chinese threat. We need to give it the right priority and, uh, and, and develop uh, the capabilities. Having said that, it's like mutual destruction. It's like the nuclear uh, armament race. Eventually, we could destroy each other, and we sat down and started disarmament and basically not proliferation efforts. This is even more difficult because in the case of the missiles, you could see it. We need to have new ground rules. New ground, in other words, we can start threatening each other and responding, and that becomes a really dangerous world. That becomes the Cold War II uh, um, Area we need there needs to be a break in this, and so far the Russians have not seen they've seen no indication that, that they're willing to sit down. But there needs to be a this is a subterranean weapon system, so you need a subterranean agreement. In other words, no one's going to be able to get out there and talk about what are the parameters of cyber warfare among among ourselves. But there should be a diplomatic and intelligence effort to open a dialogue about what. Where are the rules? What are the rules of the game? We did have them during the Cold War, and we don't have them. And we're looking at the same type of dynamic that we had with the nuclear weapons, other than cyber is not kinetic. It's not going. It's not directly going to kill people. But we need a new. We need a new approach, and we need to put this right at the top of our agenda. You mentioned that this is only the tip of the iceberg. Give us some idea of where you think this goes. Well, I think what's missing here is these are a lot of the systems. You see the sophistication, you see the approach. But what you don't see is how deep into our most sensitive secrets are they. And you don't really see a lot in this one about what are our defense systems that have been compromised. Nobody wants to talk about that. But... I can assure you that the same techniques that are used here uh, against the energy and commerce and treasury and so on have been used for years. This is why when they talk about March, we're missing the point. This right. particular attack is a March attack. But I promise you, since since cyber became an operational back in, you know, in, the, in the turn of this decade, you know, there has been a right. un 
unceasing effort. And that's my point. This battle with Russia and what has shown up here, it's the texture of the relationship. If someone was thinking that Russia is not in an adversarial mode, yep. this really should be a wake-up call because they have been doing this for the past 25, right. 20 years. And yep. so I think we need to sharpen our attention yep. to this. Hey, Jack, we're going to have to leave it there just out of time. Jack Devine, founding partner of the Arkin Group, uh, also author of a new book entitled Spy Master's Prism. Well, the scientists have done their job delivering not one, uh, but two, and likely uh, at least three in the near term uh, possible vaccines for the marketplace. Now it's up to the supply chain to get those vaccines out to uh, consumers uh, to get a sense of kind of where we are in that process and how this whole process may play out. We welcome Craig Garthwaite, director of the program on healthcare and a professor in hospital and health services at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University based in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, Craig, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, so again, the way I like to frame it is the scientists have just done a fabulous job of coming up with multiple vaccines in record time. Now the question is, how do we get them distributed efficiently and uh, timely to the marketplace? What are your thoughts as to how the U.S. is doing on this front? Yeah, thanks for having me. I I would expand a bit on not not just distribution, it's also manufacturing. Um, unlike sort of a treatment for when people get sick, we have to vaccinate everyone in the United States. So we're looking at needing, you know, 300 million people to get vaccinated. And if it's a two-shot uh, process like the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines that we have approved uh, now for emergency use, right, that's 600 million doses that we're going to need. Um, and I think the U.S. is, you know, initially doing well. And what I mean by that is that we we placed orders to get a, a, a lot of vaccine for our healthcare workers in December and early January, and we're doing a good job rolling those out. My real concern is that we seem to be unwilling to really spend what's necessary to make sure that in the second and third quarter of 2021 that we're getting all of the vaccine supplies that we need. And what I mean by that is we should be over-investing here. We should buy, if we can, enough of the Moderna vaccine and enough of the Pfizer vaccine so that either one of those will be able to treat as many Americans as possible. Because, you know, the supply chain could break down. There could be a manufacturing problem. Uh, there could be any number of things that, that happen with one of the two manufacturers. And so this is, this is when it's time for sort of a belt and suspenders approach to this. Is there any indication, Dr. Garthwaite, that we're not doing that or that there, there would be the ability to do that and, and somebody decided not to? Uh, yeah, for the Pfizer vaccine, it appears that Pfizer had asked us to exercise an option that we have in our initial contract to buy more vaccine. And for reasons that have yet to be explained by the administration, we, we have not done that. Um, from the reporting in the news and conversations I've had with people involved, it seems like Pfizer asked to do that sev- to do that several times. We did not. And so instead, Pfizer then gave the option to the European governments that also had a similar option who might have moved ahead of us in line. And I just can't understand any reason why we would not be trying to exercise every option we can to get access to as much vaccine as we can as fast as possible. There's, given the amount of economic and sort of public health destruction that the, the, the pandemic is causing, there's just no rationale, particularly at the prices that are being talked about, why we wouldn't be trying to buy literally every dose we can get our hands on. Because the worst case is we'll overbuy and then we can give it to other countries when we don't need it. 
So, Craig, you say we, we should buy. I'm not sure who we is. Is it the federal government? We've Because we really haven't had a federal government presence during this whole pandemic to begin with. It's really been left up to uh, states. Who is the we that goes out and you know, acquires uh, the stock of vaccines. So the, the we is the federal government in this case. And this, I agree with you that overall, the federal government has really fallen down on the job here, except when it comes to the focus on developing vaccines, where there has been, there been a, there's been a lot of funding given. So the Moderna vaccine was, was funded entirely by the U.S. government. Pfizer did not accept money for research and development, but did accept what we refer to as an advanced market commitment. And all that means is that we agree that if your vaccine works, if it gets approved, we're going to buy it. We guarantee we will buy it. Um, and we said we would buy 100 million doses with an option for 500 million more. And that's what, that's what we did in exercise. But this is all being organized by the federal government. So if you were designing how to go about this, because certainly the, the PPE rollout and that supply chain never worked, still isn't working, apparently. How would you design this? I mean, I think, I think you run into some difficulties when it comes to the vaccine that it, the public health authorities in every state have a lot of power as to how things get distributed. And so the state and the federal government is really working with the state government. I don't think to date what we're seeing, though, is a problem on the distribution of the vaccine to the states. Right? I think, you know, we're, we're getting it to people. We're getting it out relatively quickly. What we really need to be focusing on is making sure that we have the commitment from the manufacturers that we get the vaccine as fast as possible. And that that's it gets into what we sometimes refer to as vaccine nationalism. Where, you know, this is a global problem, I understand, but the federal government is supposed to be looking out for the United States citizens first. That's what we elected them to do. Um, And once we get the vaccine or or the pandemic under control here, then we can think a bit more magnanimously about the rest of the world. All right. So, Professor, if I'm a a Pfizer or Moderna or, you know, AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson, if the U.S. government comes knocking on my door and says, I want everything you got, I mean... how do I say no? Yeah, I mean, they, they do have contractual obligations, right? They did sign things with the European Union. But I'm very sympathetic to your position. You know, um, we've been debating why the United States pays high drug prices, and higher drug prices in the rest of the world for, a de- for decades now. Um, I would hope that one thing we've gotten for being such good customers now and a promise to be good customers in the future is a little bit of preference when it comes to getting access to things like the vaccine. Um, and so I, I do think that the door is not shut, probably, on those Pfizer doses. I think there's more negotiation uh, that will happen. And I really just want to implore policymakers to not be penny-wise, pound-foolish here, right? That, you know, pay extra for the vaccine. I don't care. Pay $60 a dose. Given what it can do for the economy, for the country, think about we're passing a nearly $1 trillion stimulus again to try and keep the economy limping along, right? If we just get all of the vaccine we need, we don't have to worry about stimulus. We can get people back to work. We can open back up businesses. And so they're really, you know, at the prices we're talking about, it is almost impossible to overpay for the vaccine. And we should make that clear to manufacturers that our checkbook is open if you will give us the supplies. How do you price this if you're a Pfizer or a, COVID or, a, or, a or a Moderna or somebody with a vaccine that's maybe a little less desirable? So, so for the Pfizer and Moderna, they've actually, I think, shown remarkable restraint in terms of the amount of value their vaccine capture or creates that they're trying to capture with their price. So we're looking at about $40 for the two-dose vaccine 
for Pfizer. Um, and that's, you know, g- given what that vaccine is doing for someone, that, that's a pretty low price and well below a lot of, you know, flu vaccines and other things that people take that are far less efficacious. Um, and so I, I do think that they're going to earn a lot of money, let's be clear, right, because $40 times a billion doses is, you know, a lot. Of, it, it, that, 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 no one's going to be upset about that. But I don't think that the pharmaceutical companies are trying to take too much value there. Yeah, it really is a phenomenal thing to watch play out from a safe distance, of course. Our thanks to you, Professor Craig Garthwaite. He's Director of the Programme in Healthcare at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined this morning by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Brian Chapata. He covers all things on the fixed income side. And a fascinating uh, column out, Brian, has uh, Jamie Dimon gets his $30 billion buyback wish. Brian, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, Jamie Dimon wasted no time in announcing this significant buyback program. Give us the background of what's happening here with the big banks. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Um, Just 10 minutes after the Federal Reserve released its second round of bank stress tests, uh, they decided to do another round because of the coronavirus pandemic and obviously its impact uh, wouldn't be clear for many months to come. So, uh, the Fed released its uh, stress test and basically said all the banks passed with flying colors, um, which was which is a clear bill of health. And as a result, they sort of loosened the restrictions on whether banks could um, buy back stock. And so within 10 minutes of that announcement, uh, Jamie Dimon and, and uh, J.P. Morgan came out uh, late Friday after markets closed and said we're starting a $30 billion buyback program. Overall, $11 billion um, among the six largest U.S. banks. Uh, could potentially be uh, bought back. Um, so it's, uh, it's a big win for the banks, uh, a pretty decent win for the bank shareholders. And for Jamie Dimon, who's been pounding the table, wanting to buy back his stock when it's been so low uh, over the past year, it's a big win as well. What were the assumptions made? I presume they were pretty harsh to allow for the pandemic, but were they harsh enough, Brian? Yeah, I mean... One of the things that I looked at most closely was the unemployment rate that was assumed. And so there were a couple assumptions where the unemployment rate would spike to to 12% and either come back pretty quickly or would spike into the double digits and recover more slowly. And in both of those scenarios, um, the banks did fine. It is always going to be a question of whether um, the Fed's looking at precisely the right metrics, whether uh, it's uh, it, it was harsh enough. But I think what we learned over the course of this year especially, is the Fed itself can step in and, and do a lot to uh, stymie any, um, any major crisis. Um, everyone expected that it could be a potentially prolonged recession when we were staring at the worst of it in March and April, and it turned out to be, to be pretty short-lived. Um, Congress came through, with a, obviously, with a fiscal package on the Fed as well on the market side. So, Brian, how did... How do we characterize the, I guess, the financial health of some of these big banks here as they think about, you know, buybacks and, and things like that? Are they in, I guess the Fed feels pretty comfortable at this stage. Yeah, only Lael Brainerd, uh, potential candidate to be the next Fed chair, actually dissented and said that she would prefer that they don't do that and, and hold on to more of their cash and their capital. Um, but I mean, I think the moral of the story is that, that it was such a sharp snapback that even though you saw these massive loan loss provisions from the banks earlier this year, um, a lot of those loans are performing now, and it's not necessarily going to be as bad as initially feared, in part because there was 
a tremendous fiscal stimulus package. I mean, make no mistake, there's still a lot of pain out there, but it's not quite as widespread and potentially systemic as I think a lot of people fear. There are pockets of weakness as opposed to all over the board. So on the face of it, I can understand how the Fed would give the go-ahead, right? We're hearing a lot about how markets are at all-time highs. The K-shaped recovery means that affluent people are not really experiencing a recession. And of course, it's affluent people that are invested in the stock market and in banks. At the same time, the Fed itself has suggested that it doesn't know what's going to happen next year. We don't know how much of this unemployment is going to be structural unemployment, and we don't know if there's going to be more pain when we expect demand to return, will that demand return or will habits have changed forever? Is that taken into account at all, Brian? Yeah, I think the the real thing that's going to be an issue for the Fed going forward, all of your, you know, like you said, they, they don't have a clear sense of what's going to happen with the economy. But even still, I think they have to be start starting to be looking at financial conditions today, notwithstanding, um, and just thinking, wow, uh, the markets are wide open. People are, people are happy. People are seeing their stock portfolios go up. Uh, anybody who wants to borrow, whether it's a large corporation or a small municipality, is able to do so pretty easily at record low interest rates. And so I, th- I think they're trying to balance that, that there is still a lot of pain out there. The labor market is very uncertain. An inflation outlook looks better than it has been, but still kind of dicey. Uh, but on the other hand, financial markets, which they have a large hand in, uh, are doing incredibly well. So I think they're trying to balance both of those. All right, well, we will see. Certainly, uh, the banks are performing just fine today. JP Morgan <laughs> itself up 3%, even as this market decreases. So we'll see how long that good feeling lasts. JP Morgan itself with a $30 billion buyback. Brian Chapada, thank you very much. Brian is Bloomberg opinion columnist and has written a great uh, column today on this stress test results which show that banks are weathering the pandemic and can actually give back uh, some dividend payments and also start buying back their own shares about six months earlier than people had been forecasting. So a little bit of a surprise after the close on Friday. Very excited to talk to our next guest, who is the CEO of Wild Alaskan. It's exactly what it says on the tin, literally. (laughs) Erin Kallenberg, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the seafood industry, on supply chain and on business. You say it's up four times from the start of 2020. Explain to us how that manifested itself. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah. Uh, just a little bit of background, you know, Wild Alaskan Company is a monthly seafood membership service. We ship, ship a curated box of wild caught sustainable seafood to members all across the country. And it's true, you know, um, we have grown about 4x this year. Oh, dear. Over 100. <laughs> yeah, over 140,000 members. Um, you know, obviously, the pandemic has been a global tragedy, but Wild Alaskan is very um, grateful to be part of the solution of bringing sustainable seafood to uh, members across the country. So Aaron, give us a sense of just kind of take us back to maybe pre-pandemic, kind of how your business was trending and then, you know, how it's evolved over the last, you know, nine to 10 months. Yeah, you know, the, the business was doing quite well prior to the pandemic. Um, I would say that we are now in a position we uh, had planned and projected to be three years from now. So really, you know, we've stayed the course. It's just been accelerated into a shorter amount of time. Um, 
And, uh, you know, nothing has really changed, you know, in terms of our, our targeting, you know, our ability to scale and accommodate, um, you know, the subscribers is really a tribute to uh, the Alaskan seafood industry, right? Um, this is a fully domesticated product um, caught and uh, processed in the United States. So we weren't dependent on any foreign supply chains uh, for the seafood or for our packaging material. And so we didn't really have any supply disruptions. It was business as usual, just accelerated. So, Aaron, I'm curious, ha- has Brexit presented any opportunities for you or is that something you stay away from entirely? Is there, is there a way for you guys to help out with the fisheries problem, let's say, by providing your fish? We, we don't currently um, ship outside of the U.S. Um, it's something that's on our long-term, mid to long-term uh, you know, roadmap, you know, to part, to start, uh, uh, booting up fulfillment centers in other countries. But right now, uh, you know, we're servicing the American domestic market. Uh, I will say that, you know, Alaska seafood in general is, um, consumed primarily abroad. It's kind of ironic, you know, Americans don't actually eat their own seafood, the seafood from their own backyard. Most Alaskan seafood is, is exported already. So mm. wild Alaskan company is an attempt to get Americans to eat this beautiful, sustainable seafood that, that by and large they're ignoring in favor of farmed, farmed fish, you know, that's being imported now. So, so, so quite the opposite from our perspective. Yeah. All right. So Aaron, I'm, I'm, you know, what I know about Alaskan seafood and fishing is kind of what I watch on TV with the wildest catch or whatever it's called, these crazy people going out in this, you just incredible rough seas of the Alaskan uh, waters there. Talk to us about the sustainable fishing market or the sustainable fishing business in Alaska? Yeah, I mean, Alaska, is, is the seafood industry is really the global gold standard for sustainable management of seafood. Um, and, you know, my family, you know, had a lot to do with that, actually. My, my grandfather was born in Manhattan, but he moved to rural Alaska in 1926. He began fishing wow. in a wooden wow. sailboat. And, um, you know, he actually went back in 1952 to the East Coast and received a master's degree from Cornell University. He wrote uh, his thesis, a study of the red salmon of Bristol Bay, with particular reference to teaching its conservation. He eventually cool. went on to, ser- to serve as the um, chairman of the Territory Board of Fisheries. A lot of folks don't know, but Alaska actually incorporated as a state in large part to gain control of the fisheries over the federal government. And by doing that, they put a mandate into the uh, state constitution, which mandates sustainable yield. And that has over the years produced um, the global gold standard for sustainable fisheries. Wow, that is really fascinating. There is a book in there, I think, and, and Paul, Deadliest Catch <laughs> yeah. is what you're thinking of. It's, yes, thank you. <laughs> it's, it really is. It can be a, a deadly profession. Erin, uh, what were the types of things that people ordered most this year? And I'm also desperate to know if you've been approached by people that are looking to take you public through a SPAC. <laughs> so our most popular species is definitely the sockeye salmon. Um, there's five commercially harvested species in Alaska, but sockeye salmon is the most popular. Most folks like to get some salmon in combination with whitefish, uh, ha- halibut, cod, sablefish, uh, rockfish, uh, wild Alaska pollock. But the salmon is really the you know the, the cornerstone of the Alaska seafood industry. In terms of going public, you know, we, we look at, you know, capitalizing the, the company um, in conjunction with our mission-based approach to accelerate humanity's transition to sustainable food systems. To that end, you know, we are a private company. Um, we're focused on stewardship. You know, I, I often say Wild Alaskan is a three-generation overnight right. success. 
Um, <laughs> obviously, it takes capital to grow the company. But, you know, I think down the road, the public markets right. could be a great place because a lot of the public is really ultimately aligned yep. with our mission, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe more so than private, private institutions. But right now, we're really just focused on stewarding okay. that mission and, uh, you, know, right. you know, building the best business we can. That's really a fascinating story. Aaron Kallenberg, thank you so much for joining us. CEO of the Wild Alaskan Company based in, get this, Homer, Alaska and Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.